Hello, everybody. Welcome to Mrs. D's Storytime. We are reading Patricia Sanjin Tells Her Own Story by Patricia Sanjin with permission of Ten of Those Publishing Company. And we are on Chapter 5, Wartime Experiences. By 1938, my aunt's school was increasing its number by leaps and bounds, and she was buying up a house after house in the neighborhood for dormitory space. Each house needed a house mother, so during my last year at school, we were moved to Applegarth, a beautiful house in the hillside overlooking the eastern plain and all the glory of sunrise. I was sad to leave the old red brick home, but we went to see Applegarth in April. The orchard grass under the blossom was thick with cowslips, and my heart was one. We kept ducks down at the end of the orchard, but they became over-familiar. My mother was never a strong disciplinarian. They were always arriving at the front door, quacking their way into a single file through the house and out the back. It wasn't very good for the carpet, but I didn't think anyone minded. One has to grow up. Hazel went to Westfield College, London, to study French, and Farnham went to Queen's College, Cambridge, for a degree in modern languages. And after Cambridge, he did his medical studies in the London Hospital. John followed him into medicine at Barts, London. Oliver read engineering in Cambridge and in the war was involved in aviation research, mainly on blind landing, and was awarded the Queen's Commendation for Valuable Services in the Air. He then did a second external London degree in math. I had already decided to do medicine, and I and two other girls from Clarendon had been accepted at the Royal Free Hospital to start our courses in September. But strangely enough, when the time came, the hospital said there were only two entrance papers that had been received. Whether the mistake lay with the hospital, the school, or the post was never discovered, but I lost my place for that year. I was bitterly disappointed and was left wondering what to do. But just at this point, the war started, and Clarendon, that safe little school squatting under the shelter of those great hills, was inundated with applications from anxious parents wanting to get their daughters away from the cities. Had anyone known that that most decisive weapon of the war Radar was being perfected at an unsuspicious-looking farmhouse less than a mile away. They might have thought differently, but nobody did know until it was all over. My aunt immediately bought up two new houses and started a junior school, and I stayed to help, teaching 7- to 11-year-olds under the guidance of a Fraubel-trained teacher who was a genius with children. I lived at home with my mother, and she needed me. The two younger boys were at boarding school, but she was a house mother to seven of the Clarendon girls, and we had three evacuees, a little girl and her nanny, and an elderly cockney lady from the east end of London called Rose. We were responsible for getting the whole household down into the cellar when the German planes zoomed over, wave upon wave, to the destruction of Birmingham and Coventry, but Rose would never hurry. She would put on her dressing gown and black hat, pack her possessions, her rations, which she kept under the bed and appeared in her own time, moaning and muttering. This annoyed Granny, for she felt she was letting the side down and the ensuing conversation would go something like this. Granny, in her briskest voice, Rose, stop grumbling like that. Remember, the Lord is looking after us. Rose, yes, the Almighty will do what he can. In spite of the anxiety and the news of deaths, the time at Clarendon was a happy interlude. I loved those children and would gladly have trained as a Farbell teacher, but it was not the time for ordinary training. Girls were being called up right and left. 
for him had taken his modern language degree and changed course to medicine. And John had also become a medical student. I applied to nurse at St. Thomas Hospital, London, and I started my training in January of 1943. The three months of theoretical training at an old manor house in Surrey went well. I made friends quickly and found the exams fairly easy, and it was here, away from home for the first time, that the beauty and value of what I had left behind dawned on me with a sense of shock and disbelief. A happy, harmonious home, a loving, united family, a strong, consistent Christian heritage. I had known vaguely that I was fortunate, but I had accepted them as my normal, natural birthright, until one afternoon when my mother traveled down from Mulville to spend my half-day off with me. We walked out to a little village and had tea in a cafe and walked back three or four miles to the nurse's home. It was a quiet day in early spring. On the folded Surrey hillsides, sheep and lambs bleated to each other, and in the hedges, birds trilled over their nest building. And as on that old walk to Emmaus, when their eyes were open, I suddenly realized the depth of my parents' self-giving over the years, the daily cost of that small paradise my mother had created for us, and which I had always taken for granted. I did not try to tell her there was no need. We were so close on that March evening that words seemed unnecessary. Her hairstyle and clothes were plain in, in the extreme, her manner simple and kindly, but I remember the glowing pride with which I introduced her to my new friends, and even the most sophisticated were drawn to her. What a nice mum you've got. I remember, too, the sense of desolation when her taxi drove off into the dusk. On that day, I think I finally grew up. But the three months drew to a close, and nothing had prepared me for the crisis in the wartime wards or the speed at which we were expected to work. I was geared to the country, the seasons, and the slow pace of little children, and I was terrified. I seemed to run all down with a racing pulse, nor was I in the least used to the fierceness of these wartime sisters. I started with a notorious old battle-axe, who was shortly after transferred to the Navy, when the Honorable Somebody or Other had a serious nervous breakdown under her, and her exalted parents complained. A number of my friends dropped out. Only 13 survived of the original set of the 24. But I galloped on, more afraid of failure or of making a mistake than I was of any sister. I started developing septic toes and fingers, and then boils. It was almost a relief to be sent off duty, but it happened so often. Every hand was needed, and the last straw was when I left a door open and a stray cat wandered in. We were working in temporary army huts and sat on a sterile trolley. Matron was one of England's great ladies. She had just been awarded the OBE for the evacuation of most of St. Thomas's Hospital in the space of 12 hours during the Battle of Britain, and she was in no mood for dealing with inefficiency. She had a habit of addressing the ceiling when dealing with such, which made them feel as if they weren't there. She glanced first at my reports and then on high. You've been off almost as much as on, she remarked. Perhaps you're not cut out for this practical nursing. You did well on your exams. Why don't you go and do something with your brains? It was over and I could go without any further fuss, and yet I failed. Perhaps things would never be the same again. I decided to go for a walk and think things out. I walked a long way and came to a railroad station, and there at the entrance, in huge black letters, Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? 
I stood in front of that hoarding for a very long time, for I knew I was facing one of the biggest, most far-reaching decisions of my life. If I had said, yes, I do believe, then I must go back to the fear and possibility of another failure and sickness. But if I said, no, I don't believe, I was free to start a different kind of life. And yet, would I ever be able to believe in him again? I thought, probably not. And I realized very clearly that to face life without him was an impossibility. He had been there too long. I believe that you are able. I accepted the offer of another chance and proved that he was able. I had no further sickness and somehow the work seemed different. I was always anxious but no longer afraid. Embracing each new experience, stretched and growing with joy in the heartbreak, the first death of a child, the thrill of an unexpected recovery, the courage and humor of war casualties and bomb victims maimed for life, the anguished confidences whispered in the quiet night hours, the birth of a baby in a bomb tenement when I was spending my day off at a London hospital with Farnham, who was now a medical student. He was on night call, and the sirens had sounded, and the raid had started, but we climbed over the rubble, broken glass, and arrived just in time. Never shall I forget the feeling of peace and achievement as we sat with the world apparently exploding around us and drank hot, sweet cups of tea around the bed with that tiny little morsel of humanity cradled in his mother's arms. And there was so much laughter, too, and perhaps we had not been able to face the tragedies around us without it, We sometimes worked in the blacked-out skeleton of a London building where the few wards had been left open for emergencies, and sometimes we were sent out to military hospitals in safer areas. Our Thomas sisters were fierce to such as us, but they were marvelous nurses, and we respected them. As we grew more responsible, we often grew to love them. But when we came under the rule of less dedicated sisters, we despised them. We had become nursing snobs. There was a night sister at the military hospital whom we call the Purple Python. I had no idea why. She was young and pretty and spent a major part of her off and on duty in the officer's ward and had several times been caught behind a hut with an officer behaving in a way that our Thomas sisters would never have behaved, even when they had the chance. We, who were in charge of 36 privates each, gave her scant respect. I remember listening for her footsteps on the ramp night after night while my friend Cherry consorted with her boyfriend in the laundry. The moment I heard her, I raised the alarm. Michael shot into the ward, intent on a patient, and Cherry, who was fat, doubled herself into the laundry basket and slammed the lid down. The purple python never seemed very interested in the night report, and I was always in a hurry to get rid of her, lest Cherry should die of asphyxiation. I displeased her once, because on a quiet night, I wrote a long letter to my mother describing these carryings-on and illustrated it with a rather uncomplimentary sketch of this woman. I was tired in the morning and accidentally handed it in with a night report. She returned it to me the next evening with something like a snarl, holding it at arm's length between her fingers and thumb as though it might explode. But once, quite unintentionally, I got my own back. My only help during those rather hectic nights when the convoys of wounded were flying in, bringing the invasion casualties by the dozen, was an elderly VAD. She did her routine work well till 2 a.m., and then she would collect spare pillows and settle down to sleep in the bath till 5 a.m. I was often tempted to turn the taps on, but I never did. She was old and weary and much more experienced than I was and very pleasant, and one day she really saved me. 
Our ward laid directly opposite the army hut where the night nurse ate her midnight meal, so it was my job to serve her tray on the dot F-12. Men might be dying or hemorrhaging, but that tray must never be late. So my world caved in one night when I rushed into the kitchen at 11.58 and saw a black cat streaking out the window with purple python's chicken leg in its mouth. Food was severely rationed, and even if I gave her mine, it would have to be cooked. Whatever shall I do, I wailed. Leave it to me, duck, said the VAD. Just go and see what that chap wants and come back here. I answered the call and came hurrying back. The tray was ready with cold meat and its salad, tastefully arranged. I picked it up and charged for the hut opposite. Wherever did you get that from? I asked gratefully on my return. From the pig bucket, ducks, replied the VAD, and it's all the old cat deserves. This is a long chapter, so we are breaking in about the center point. The second part will continue tomorrow.